In our house, we've been speaking some Latin recently. Actually, that would be an, that's an overstatement. <laughs> studying some Latin. Phoebe, our sixth grader, is studying Latin in her school curriculum. And so we've heard some Latin phrases. Maybe that's a better way to say it. We've heard some Latin phrases tossed around. Probably all of us have heard the Latin phrase carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Although there is some debate about whether that's actually what it means. I'll leave that to you to look up on Google later on. We'll take it this morning to mean seize the day. This is something that our culture epitomizes. Desiring to seize the day. Specifically, in a way that says, I must seize this day in order to be seen. We're a culture that measures value, measures success, based on being seen, based on image. Do we not? So carpe diem means exploits and adventures. Images curated of ourselves for display in the museums of social media. We want to be seen culturally. Maybe you don't feel that necessarily, or maybe you do. How often are you scrolling even if you're not posting yourself, looking for more images of whatever it may be? We also see this even in our daily speech. I see you, big eyes emoji. I see what you're doing. I see what you did there. It's about being seen. Even in our daily self-examinations, we might say this, at work, I don't feel seen. Or, my husband loves me well because I feel like he sees me. Back in 1989, Andre Agassi, tennis star and Canon spokesperson, famously sloganed, image is everything. And that was 34 years ago. Even more so true today. However, it is ironic that in a culture that is obsessed with image, We're not really concerned about another Latin phrase. Corum Deo. Before the face of God. R.C. Sproul says, Corum Deo captures the essence of the Christian life. To live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God, Whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. Psalm 139, as Sabrina read earlier, Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? There are zero places in the universe to flee from the gaze of God. Hebrews 4.13, as Sarah read, 
No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We are seen. God sees us. All of life for the Christian or even for that person who is not a Christian is before the face of God. Coram Deo. This chapter that we'll go into this morning, 1 Samuel 16, has a lot of language that talks about seeing or looking. Helps us see the reality of what God sees. There's a famous verse that likely you've heard. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Last week, as the kingdom is being torn away from Israel's first king, Saul, Samuel says the glory of Israel, meaning God, is not a man. He's not a man that he should have regret. But if you remember from last week, there was a sense in which God did have regret just differently and perfectly because God, the glory of Israel, is not a man. So today we'll see that it's not that God does not see. Absolutely, he sees. Or that image does not matter to him because actually we'll see in this chapter, it matters very significantly. But he does not see as we see. He is not obsessed with images the way that we are obsessed with images. In the sight of the king, image is a heart thing. Lord, as we come before you today, we bow our hearts knowing that we are image-obsessed people. And we ask, O God, before your face this morning, that you would open up your word to us, teach us from your heart. That we may be more and more made into the image of Christ, our King. For his glory. Amen. So when we last left Saul and Samuel, end of chapter 15 in 1 Samuel, God has torn the kingdom from Saul. Samuel is grieved and God is regretting. In the sight of the king, image is a heart thing. When I talk about the king this morning, I'm talking about the king. This being God, the glory of Israel. And when I'm talking about image, we're talking about, yes, the things that we do see, we observe. But when we talk about the heart, we need to understand a few things. Biblically, the heart refers to the moral and the spiritual life of the person. And 
the heart encapsulates our emotions, our minds, our wills. Did you interact with your own heart at all this week? Emotion, mind, wills? Yes. Yes. Your heart affected you this week. The thing is, biblically, the heart is not a rosy picture. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, It's depraved by sin. It is deceitful, the heart is, above all things, and desperately sick. If right now you got an email with a cancer diagnosis from your physical this last week, and your doctor said, your liver is desperately sick, come in immediately, you would not flinch. You would not hesitate. The Bible says that our hearts, the spiritual organ that encapsulates our emotions, our minds, and our wills, is desperately sick from sin. Furthermore, in Jeremiah 17.10, the very next verse, it says, The Lord searches the heart. Lest we think we can hide our sickness, the Lord himself searches the heart and tests the mind. God sees our hearts in all of their gore. So God says, we need new hearts. And that these hearts are not hearts that we can somehow have like spiritual transplant surgery of our own effect. This is transplant surgery that God and God alone can do, and he says, I will Jeremiah 32, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Perhaps you've wrestled this week with your heart. And you've come this morning in a place of desperation. But that desperation has not made you say, and I need hope. You're saying, I'm just hopeless. My heart can't handle life. God says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Furthermore, here Jeremiah says later on in chapter 32, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For those that God is doing a work of heart change in, he says, I'm doing it with all my heart. It's not number 10 on his to-do list. It is his priority to continue to do a work of heart transformation in those he has called, in those that he saves. How? You ask, perhaps. How would God do this? By the Holy Spirit. 
Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. That's laying some groundwork about the heart that will help us to understand a bit more of what's going on here in 1 Samuel 16. Because as God sees, in the first section here, verses 1 through 5, God sees a grieved heart further formed into an even more obedient heart. Let's go to the text, chapter 16. Let's back up just into the last verse of, verse of chapter 15. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him, whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling. Doubtless they had heard that the, Saul, that the kingdom had been torn from Saul. And they said, trembling, do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. God sees a humble heart here. He sees to it that a humble heart, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead, that a grieved heart, Samuel's, grieved that Saul was king and now has been torn away, is further formed into an even more obedient heart. See, as we've gone through 1 Samuel, you know that Samuel knew the Lord from his youth. His mother Hannah had brought him to Shiloh to serve under Eli. It says he did not yet know the Lord, and then the Lord called him. He responded, and he knew the Lord from then on. Samuel listened to, he obeyed, and he relayed the word of the Lord. These things defining him as God's appointed judge, but also as a prophet and a priest. Samuel was the real deal. He was the guy that Israel needed, yet Israel said, your sons are bogus, and they're coming up behind you. We need a king. All the stuff with Saul plays out, and now Samuel is still grieving, for Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord. You can imagine Samuel's hurt, the wasted time, the shot to his reputation, the trauma even 
of having to try to keep this regency afloat. Even the doubt, did I truly understand God's will in this? And God sees Samuel, and he has an intervention with Samuel by his word. I have seen, Samuel, I do see. Now it's time for you to get up and see the salvation that I'm about to bring. I have chosen, provided for myself, a king among Jesse's sons. To which Samuel says, but how can I go? That's putting my life on the line. To which it might seem at first glance that God tells Samuel to lie. He does not. He said there's some information that needs to be known and other information that does not need to be told. But the information that he says is actually important because Samuel, as a judge, would go to these different towns and there sacrifice on behalf of the town, consecrate the town. And so as a judge, Samuel takes a heifer. See, this anointing of David that is to come is not just a political act. It's a spiritual one. Because the true king of Israel was going to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Samuel, this is about more than a king. It's about a consecrated king. And so he goes up and he assures Jesse and his sons that he comes peaceably. The elders of the city are worried as well. Jesse and his sons are consecrated, set apart, made holy, would be the synonyms here, and invited them to the sacrifice. Yet Samuel's a wounded guy. He's grieved. He continues to grieve. Brother and sister in Christ this morning, what are you doing with your grief? Sometimes we use grief as a ballast. A ballast is the place in the lower parts of a ship where either they allow water to come in or they put other heavy material like gravel or sand in it to keep the ship afloat, keep it stable in rough waters. Sometimes we use grief as a ballast. This is what I know. The heaviness of what I've experienced, I keep in the holds of my ship to keep me upright, keep me centered, in a sense, keep me afloat. You might even say, how can I go from where I am to where God wants me to go? How can I go? It feels like dying to me to allow that grief to somehow be touched by God's hands. Brother and sister, God grieves with you. But he also says, have I not provided for myself a king? Brother and sister in Christ, 
He's provided us a king, a king that is well acquainted with grief, a king that knows our sorrows. He's a man of sorrows. Furthermore, he made the sea. The storms that your personal boat is rocking in, that's his storm. He rules the waves of grief. In Romans 5, Paul says, Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. It has been poured into the ballast of our lives through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love through the Spirit is weightier than any grief you would continue to live in. And I would be going too far today to be able to say, stop grieving. Listen, grief is grief. At the same time, as I know some of you in this congregation are doing, would you allow the one who is the man of sorrows, the one who is well acquainted with grief, the one who pours the Holy Spirit into our hearts, that love, would you allow him to be able to work in the grievous places of your heart? Ask him to weather the storm. Ask him to steady your heart. And don't rely on your grief. You are being further formed, brother and sister. And you have the Holy Spirit. So grieving Samuel hears from the Lord. He obeys and he consecrates the family of Jesse. God has seen a grieving heart and further forms it into an even more obedient heart. Samuel hears the word of the Lord and he goes. Next we see that God sees a humble heart formed into an anointed heart. Verse 6, chapter 16. When they came, these being the sons of Jesse, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, <clears throat> surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then, Joseph, then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And Jesse replied, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. 
Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So we see a reversal here. Saul had been the tallest man in Israel. A head taller than any other man. And Israel thought, great, we need a guy like him. But in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised at this reversal. If you remember Hannah's song that sets up the entire book of 1 Samuel. Remember Hannah, after she sends Samuel to Shiloh, sings, prays, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. In verse 10 of chapter 2, she says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But in between those two verses, talking about the horn of oil, the horn of anointing on the king, are verse after verse after verse of saying things like this. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So Hannah rejoices that in this great reversal, that is the way the Lord does things, he will exalt a king who will be exalted in the Lord. He will bring salvation. And he will be set up in a place of judging by the one who will judge all of the nations of the earth. And so back here, as Samuel now has seen David, we see Samuel arise to get up, and he lifts up the horn of anointing oil on the king, the new king, on whom God says, I have provided for myself. This is he. This is not a king like the people it asked for, to be like the nations. This is a king who God says, he has a heart after my own. That's the kind of heart I have given him. This is the king Israel needs. We wonder who else was there. Going back to verse 5, you think Jesse and his sons were consecrated? David must have been left out in the fields. He didn't come to the feast. Samuel didn't know about him. Then they line up on the gym wall, tallest to shortest, and Samuel's going down. God's saying, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. David comes, the shepherd, which in the anticipation of Israel to be a shepherd was synonymous with being a king. He comes in out of the field 
after faithfully caring for his flocks. And he's anointed. But even before that, you get this picture of the image of David. Not glorious, but humble and appropriately regal. Ruddy, beautiful eyes and was handsome. And Samuel anoints him. Who else was there when he was anointing? It says anointed him in the midst of his brothers, but as we'll see next week, it seems like his brothers are pretty clueless as to what has actually happened. We don't know who else was in the room where it happened. Yet Samuel is, sorry, David is anointed here. And that's anointing is something that happens to kings and prophets and priests. But for now, David is only a king waiting in the wings. But he's more than that. He's more than that. Because the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And as we saw with Samson and Judges, and as we've seen three times with Saul, that spirit with those guys came and went. The spirit that would enable them to judge as God wanted them to judge. To be active for the glory of God and for his kingdom. But for David, the David, the Holy Spirit stayed on him from that day forward. This was an anointing that remained. An anointing that abided. The spirit in David and David in the spirit. When we talk about anointing here, I know like in our modern like evangelical landscape, anointing can sometimes be put over on the charismatic side of things. Okay? That's a discussion for another day. The discussion for today is this. David was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And that anointing remained. Anointing, the anointed one in Hebrew, is Messiah. In Greek, that's Christos. So we can say in a real way that you could now call David the Christ. Looking back through the cross, little c Christ. But David the Christ, David the Anointed One, David the Messiah. He was there to save Israel as Hannah had sung. Yet, we know that there is a greater Christ to come. Listen to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Isaiah the prophet said. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 700 years before the arrival of Christ, Isaiah prophesied that. And then we move to Luke 4. Luke 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll 
and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Is not this Jesse's son? Is not this Joseph's son? Jesus is the greatest Christ, capital C, the anointed one come to proclaim good news. That though God sees our hearts more thoroughly than we could even imagine, and there is no place to hide from his gaze, Jesus was sent to proclaim salvation, good news of liberty and forgiveness to all of us whose hearts are captive to sin. He accomplished this liberty by his death and his resurrection. This is the good news that he came to proclaim. You can be free. But sometimes we stop right there. Jesus also ascended to the right hand of glory. And he told his disciples, wait, because I'm sending to you a counselor, a helper. And the Father, through Christ, sends the Holy Spirit of Christ to anoint his people. We see this happen first at Pentecost. But brother and sister, if you're a Christian, it has also happened to you. This is the reality of new birth. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot be reborn. It is by God's grace that he sends his spirit to re-enliven, to give new birth to dead hearts. And so it is entirely appropriate then what John writes in 1 John, that we are little Christs as well. Little C's because we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit even as David was. That might challenge your assumptions in a little bit. 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Listen, unless you want to turn there. John, speaking to the church, says this. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, one Antichrist, so now many Antichrists 
have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are that they all are not of us. But you, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Last two verses. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the fullness of the gospel. That we have been justified by God's grace through faith in Christ. And Christ has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell his people. To say, you are anointed ones. You have the Spirit and he abides in you. See, in the sight of the king, image is a heart thing. That spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes in and changes our hearts, and it begins to have an outward effect. So if we're talking about sight and image this morning, how does God see you? Brother and sister, he sees you as this, justified in Christ perfected in his sight, anointed by his spirit and his child. Which then begs the question, how do you see yourself? Listen, if you are in Christ, you should see yourself the same way as the Father sees you. Justified, no longer guilty, anointed by his spirit, his child. I'm going to press on something a little sensitive right now. In the American church, therapy and counseling have become close to godliness. Let me just ask you this question. 
I've recommended people to go get counseling. I counsel people who have been or are in therapy. So I'm not, I'm not giving the kibosh on those things. But I am saying this. Do you, if you are in counseling or therapy, have a framework for understanding where that is leading you to and who lives in you? Does your counselor or your therapist have an understanding of where you are going and who lives in you? If you are a counselor or a therapist yourself, do you have an understanding for your client's sake of where you are taking them and who, if they're a Christian, lives inside of them? Because we have the greatest counselor in the world living inside of us. So if you're going to counseling to become as I heard somebody say as I was sermon prepping yesterday and they walked by the street, become, I got to become the best version of myself. If that's your goal, brother and sister, that's only a worthy goal if you're saying the most submitted to Christ, the most full of his spirit, the most healed by the gospel. If it's, in a way saying, I want to avoid suffering or grief. That's not the end goal. The end goal is to bear more and more the image of Christ. So understand me again. I know that's sensitive because I, I know how pervasive it is. And I use pervasive in the best sort of word. I know how full the church, capital C in America, church, is in the experience and the longing for therapy and counseling. Again, I'm not saying you should not. I'm just saying before the Lord, allow the love of God that is poured into the ballast of your life's ship be the Holy Spirit and not your other presenting issues. Plot twist to finish up chapter 16. God has seen an anointed heart, uh, grieved heart, and made it even more obedient. He's seen a humble heart, and by his grace made it into an anointed heart. Finally, God sees an anointed heart, David, and he also sees an abscessed heart, Saul's. This is introducing into Samuel, into 1 Samuel, this reality that for a time, there were actually two kings in Israel. There was the one who had been anointed, but no longer actually had the Holy Spirit. And the one who was anointed, yet did not have the throne. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. 
Spirit of the Lord left, harmful spirit came. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will play well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Plot twist, David from Bethlehem is now in the court of the king and closer with Saul than anyone. God uses this tormenting spirit to provoke within Saul's servants. We got to find some help for our king. And so the Lord uses those circumstances to bring David full of the spirit to Saul, who was under judgment. The presence of David brings relief to Saul. But as we've already seen in Saul's life, relief does not necessarily mean repentance or spiritual renewal. The complicated heart of Saul remains hardened. To which I have to ask us this question. Do we come to church for relief or for repentance and renewal? Because both are available here, no doubt. You can come into the space of Christians, the space of people who have the Holy Spirit in them and the joy that we should have, the worship of God that we should have, these things that display themselves in love for one another and love for him, this, by God's grace, is, a, this is the place you should be. But if you come just saying, Phew, I got my fill. I have relief from last week. Don't be Saul. Don't just come looking for relief. Come open to having the Holy Spirit point out your sin and point you to Jesus. That is what a gospel church does. In the sight of the king, image is a heart thing. So don't be satisfied with feeling relieved just because you've been with God's people. Don't be Saul and continue like Saul to find excuses for your self-rule. Remember, God sees, God knows. You don't need to put on the image of being a good church person. That's hypocrisy. Instead, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Spirit, come make us humble. 
we need to be humbled under his mighty hand and repent, knowing that there is a Savior that was sent to save. So let's believe together him who was sent. Where we come here to finish up is this. We see an unusual picture here spoken by one of the young men in Saul's court that describes the anointed David. Skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. See, in the sight of the king, image is a heart thing. In the service of the king, and I mean capital K, king, image is a holy thing. Because brother and sister, our images reflect the king. If we are anointed people by the Holy Spirit, we have a responsibility to say, be reflected in me, because we are reflecting him. We are generating an image that the world sees of what it looks like to know Christ. We'll talk more next week about his skillful in playing, man of valor, man of war. But I do want to press in a little bit into this reality. Are we prudent in speech? Are we prudent in speech? As Jesus said himself, out of the excesses of the heart, the mouth speaks. How were your words this week? How were your social media posts this week? Here's a good test, both for your words spoken and your words posted. What if we took those things and put them out here, made a banner of them, and put them on the corner of the church for next Sunday? We have to, brother and sister, take into consideration what we say because it reflects on God and his church. So if you're getting ready to share a post on Facebook, put that image before your mind. Would I want this screenshotted, put on a banner, and put out over here, Edgewater Swedish Baptist Church, 1910. Because what you post on social media affects people. Because they are looking to see whether the Christ who died for you is legitimate for them. And if you do not you are living in sin. You are creating a stumbling block for the gospel. Read Romans 14. We must be aware of the image that we present. Not to clean ourselves up and make us handsome. No, to say, how does the world see Christ in me? Does the world see Christ in me? 
Or does the world see an antichrist in me? I cannot overstate how important this is. Please hear it. This is for all of us. In the service of the king, image is a holy, set-apart, consecrated thing. If our hearts have been anointed, how we are seen is a holy thing. Political posts exalt a political king rather than the king of kings. I'm just going to say it. In a politically divided place, take care. Does it mean you cannot have political opinions? Of course not. We all do. But when you put it out there to be observed and read and judged without any sort of conversation, you are affecting the kingdom of God. Stop. Repent. May we turn to Christ afresh and ask the Spirit to further form us, to give us a joy and peace in believing, Romans 15, 13, where he changes us from the inside out and people are thirsty for the water of life that is gushing out of us through the Spirit. That is the life, that is the image of the Spirit-filled Christian. Don't walk in the flesh. Walk in Him. I don't preach that to be law. I preach that as a direct reality that flows out of the gospel. We must have gospel integrity where our lives match what we believe. We have been given the heart. New hearts in the Holy Spirit. By the King who lives to give us new hearts and has dedicated his heart and soul and his hands and his feet and his side for that purpose. Would we humbly bow ourselves and say, Spirit, bring repentance where repentance is necessary. Give us faith. And help us to change that our repentance would be seen to a world that is watching before the Coram Deo face of God. Lord, we love you. We are thankful that you've given us your spirit. And God, I pray if there are ways that we need to respond in prayer, that we would give us the words to say, Pour out your Holy Spirit in conviction, repentance, and faith that we might hear from you even this morning. In your name, amen.